Welcome to Hello Health Today, where health is a leadership strategy. I'm Dr. Carmen Mohan. Joining me today as part of our Women at the Helm series is author, anti-racism advocate, and sociology professor, Dr. Marnie Brown. Marnie and I talked about what true diversity, equity, and inclusion should mean really focusing on a sense of belonging and the importance of honoring people's experiences, not just looking out in a classroom and saying, oh, we look diverse. Marnie has a rare joint, bone, and skin disease called ankylosing spondylitis. She was one of the first patients to join my private practice at the Hello Health Clinic. She gave us a rare look into what it's like to cope with a chronic disease and still work for what you believe. I think that's the hard thing about chronic illnesses is it doesn't go away. It's just finding strategies to cope with it so you can still have your life. Marnie, it's so great to finally be able to have you on the show. We've been saying we do this for a while now. We have. I'm so glad to be here with you today. Every time you tell me about the work you do, I feel so inspired. Tell us a bit more about what it means to be a sociologist. I would be happy to. So um, I am one of those people that have always loved school. I love the structure of school. I like the way in which school kind of organizes my life. And I remember when I started my undergraduate career back in the 90s at the University of Florida, it took me a long time to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. But something I knew is I really liked working with people and I really liked the college environment. But, you know, that's a that's a very broad experience. So I was really fortunate to have some good mentors when I was there. And um, I ended up taking several women's studies classes. One of the first that drastically changed my life was a class called Black Feminist Thought. It was taught by a Black feminist scholar. And what we read in there and the discussions we had, it was like a world had opened to me that I didn't even know existed out there. And that really kind of motivated me to want to teach that material and engage in that material with other people. Um, And I learned that sociology particular was a good path for doing that, because what sociology is really all about is understanding the experiences that we have in the social world that we live in and understanding that so much of what we do as human beings is in interaction or reaction to the social world that's around us. So I tell my students all the time, what I love about sociology is we get to explore why people do what they do. Right, why we sit the way we do, how we dress, how we talk, the way we walk, what we read, how we eat, just about everything that we do as human beings can have a social story to it. So I ended up coming to Georgia State University to do my PhD, and I was mentored by some fabulous anti-racist and black feminist and gender scholars. And, and I realized that studying gender and sexuality and race were really important to me. So I did that for my dissertation. I started teaching those classes at Georgia State. Um, I spent a little bit of time at Agnes Scott, and then for almost nine years now, I've been at Georgia Gwinnett College. I am an associate professor of sociology there and chair of faculty for the Human Development and Aging Services Program. I'm also the faculty senate vice president, and in that role, I do a lot of advocating for diversity, equity, and inclusion, professional development for faculty, and I work with students um, in various capacities, from the classroom to mentoring some student groups, um, to helping getting our food pantry off the ground to serve the students that attend the school. When you speak about your students, I hear such fondness in your voice. What are the ingredients that make a student-professor relationship so warm? Mm. That's such a great question. You know, I think 
my experience is unique in the sense that I work at a four-year state college. And one of the great things about this school is it's been open access. So it allows students from a lot of different backgrounds to consider college as part of their path to upward mobility. So I really get to work with students that one, don't necessarily look like me. And that, in, in just in that experience alone, I learned so much from what their lived experience has been. And the students that I get to work with and serve are really looking at school as an opportunity to better their lives and to better their family lives and to make a difference in the world that they're a part of. So I work with DACA students, first-generation college students, students that are gender minorities, have experienced various experiences of discrimination and oppression, and they bring that to the classroom. And then what we do in sociology allows those experiences to become our data. And we use those experiences to not only understand ourselves, but to empathize with others and I find that for so many of these students, if we're talking about an experience of discrimination, for example, and we bring in literature and data that supports what they've gone through, it gives them a whole new way of understanding themselves. And that's that's that moment. That's that beautiful moment where they're like, oh my gosh, somebody is studying this and I've lived this. I see myself in this material. And then they're encouraged to, to talk and to think about how they want to change the world. And I feel so fortunate to be a part of that path with these young people. Um, and then, of course, I work with some really exceptional folks um, at my institution. So I feel motivated and inspired by them. And I feel like I'm serving a purpose because I'm working with a population that really is interested in learning and not just going to college because that's what they've been told to do. That's amazing. Uh, you know, it's like how you get your batteries included, right? Yeah, it's like for sure. When the meaning inside data comes to life for you and helps you make sense of, yeah, of you yourself know, yeah. and your world. Yeah. It, it's so interesting to hear you say that because yesterday for Women's History Month, um, I run the gender studies minor at my institution and I helped organize some Women's History Month events. And it's been harder because of COVID. I mean, generally we have these events where we're together and we're sharing space and we're eating and we're watching and discussing. But of course, all of it is happening through the computer now. Um, but yesterday, I organized a group of students and we talked about resiliency and the importance of being resilient. And to hear some of these young people um, talk about you know, understanding that they're trans and what that has been like, what it's been like overcoming um, either ethnic or racial discrimination, dealing with mental health. Um, it's just been like it, it warms my heart and it feeds my soul to not only hear their stories, but to to possibly think I'm being a part of their journey. And for that, I feel so fortunate. And that relationship between the student and teacher, it's very dialectical. I learn from them as much as they learn from me. And that really keeps me motivated. 2020 drove a wedge into social inequities and injustice like many of us wouldn't have believed if we hadn't lived it ourselves. That's right, that's um, right. It exposed inequities in ways that we haven't seen before. Now that diversity, equity, and inclusion are these buzzwords, is yeah. the work you've been doing for more than 15 years getting the support it deserves? I think in some ways it is. I mean, to your point, with it becoming um, buzzwords or popular words, um, it's not that the students I work with, it's not new to them. But for a lot of the faculty and administrators I work with, especially when you're a public institution, so you work obviously under the direction of the University System of Georgia and the Board of Regents and the governor, um, this is work that I've been pushing for for a long time. Some of it is getting more recognition and resource support. Um, but it's still, I still find myself convincing people um, because 
particularly where I work, we, we are diverse. We, I, I live in Decatur, but I work in Gwinnett County. It's one of the most diverse counties. But even though we have the diversity, it doesn't mean we have the inclusion. So really focusing on a sense of belonging and the importance of honoring people's experiences, not just looking out in a classroom and saying, oh, we look diverse. Okay, it's great to look diverse, but what does it mean to bring that diversity together? And I think that's a step that a lot of people miss. They're happy to see diversity, but it's like, what do we do with the diversity? How do we use it? How do we celebrate it? Um, and also getting people to recognize that we all have biases, implicit and explicit biases. And how do we check those at the door or become cognizant of those? So we try not to um, make those mistakes. Um, and and to, your, to your question, I mean, there is some support for it, but I still find that I'm knocking on doors and advocating and asking for resources to do this sort of work. Um, it's not as central as I would like it to be quite yet. Yeah, it's interesting. So you really look at each of these words, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I heard you just have a much deeper sense and understanding of what that each of these is separate and the work to create them is different, that diversity right. doesn't mean a sense of belonging, which you include in inclusion. That's right. That's right. How does belonging, I mean, that's so interesting because loneliness is so rampant yes. in, in COVIDville, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just everyone doesn't feel like they belong even that's more right. than we used that's to, right. right? It was already there and then COVID just made it even more stark. That's right. How, what is the work of belonging? Mm. I find the work of belonging is making sure that um, we see each other, you know, we make eye contact, we do a lot of attentive listening, which is different than just listening. It, it's really forcing yourself to put everything else down and pay real close attention to what somebody is saying to you. Um, it's honoring stories and honoring the voices, particularly the voices that don't always get heard and putting those more to the center. You know, as as a white person that's striving for anti-racism, there's so much about being white that is normalized, and there's so much about other experiences that are not normalized. So part of what I try to do is is move my voice when it comes to race out and let other voices come in and really think about what those voices mean, and then, of course, how they intersect with other parts of who we are and create a safe space for people to be together. Sometimes this means we have to set ground rules for what the conversation is going to be, because um, you and I both know not everybody is on the same path of the same journey towards whether it's anti-racism or equity or inclusion. So part of creating the sense of belonging is letting all these different journeys come together and they matter, they're, val- you know, they're valid and they have value and, and letting that be part of, of what we're doing um, and making sure that if somebody wants to say something or somebody wants to share, there is time for it. And we listen, we try to empathize, try to advocate for what comes up in these conversations. Um, when I, pre-COVID, when I would teach, I was always that person that would move everything around in the classroom yeah. to create a circle so yeah. we could sit together and see each other. I don't like the way um, power dynamics can happen in the classroom. Just because I'm the professor, it doesn't mean I have to be at the front of the room. So let's shift that up and make sure that everybody feels that they belong in the class. It's not just about me giving information. It's about getting stuff back. Um, and that's that's what I try to do. And of course, over Zoom or these other um, you know platforms that we've had to teach our classes, it's a little bit harder to do that. But I'm trying to find ways to make sure that all students feel that who they are and what they've gone through matters to the success of the class or the work that we're doing and really try to bring them in. 
um, I have found, and we've talked a little bit about this, because of COVID and working with students that are not just going to college, but working full time and have family responsibilities, this has been very hard on them. So I'm trying to find more flexibility than I've had before when it comes to assignments and papers and really trying to meet students where they're at. So for example, I'll have students that are at work and listening to class and they've had to pick up that shift because they've got medical bills to pay or they've got a grandparent with COVID that's in need of other things. So really trying to adjust what the learning space means and to be more flexible with my students. Wow. Wow. Um, Marnie, I don't know where I saw this statistic, but supposedly more than 80% of Americans want to write a book before they die, but only somewhere between 1% to 2% of books are actually published. So who knows how many aren't written at all? You've written not one, not two, but you're in the middle of three and your fourth book projects. What is driving you to do this? (laughs) I appreciate you asking that. You know, I've I've had such a wonderful opportunity to work with some amazing um, feminists that have been publishing and working in the field that I work in and have really kind of guided me and brought me into the publishing world. Um, I find that it's really important to publish material particularly uh, scholarship material that covers, you know, not only this anti-racist work, but, you know, I do a lot of work with gender. So really trying to create, Mm -hmm. really trying to create books that are accessible and useful and get us thinking about why gender works the way that it does and how it matters in our lives and creating books that are not just for college students, but books that you and I can read. Um, They are academic. They use a lot of academic social science research. Um, But the goal is to create something that a student doesn't want to sell back. Yeah, right? they don't that's want to rent. So they, want cool. it, they want to keep and they want it on their bookshelf <laughs> and, they, and they want to use it. And I feel really lucky. The two projects right now, um, one is a book for K through 12 teachers on how to address gender and sexuality in the classroom and create gender inclusive classrooms. You know, I have that one. I really love that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think what's happening in there is this idea that instead of organizing students by boy and girl, Let's organize them by birthdays. Let's make sure that we've got gender neutral bathrooms in place, that our dress codes, if we have them, are equitable, that we have um, a variety of images and material that we read that speaks to different gender and sexual backgrounds. Um, and then the other book, it's, it's this interesting one, it's called The Gender Project. And we're looking at the way gender constantly changes, the performance of gender changes, and what's really at the core of it changing now. So we're focusing a lot on trans and non-binary experiences. We're looking at masculinities, which is often a subject that doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, We're taking a look at the global and international way in which gender happens. As you and I both know, it's not the same from country to country. So what are the, the ways gender is problematic in one country in comparison to another? And trying to do a lot of that through an intersectional lens. So recognizing that gender doesn't exist on its own. It exists at the intersection of things like race and class. So how do we kind of pull that together to really honor the way gender shapes our lives? Wow. Wow. Um, I've always been impressed by your thought leadership. (laughs) We need big thinkers if we want to see what Martin Luther King called the long arc of justice bend toward a better, more fair world where everyone belongs. Right. Where do your good ideas come from? I mean, what what I really mean is, um, do academics just sit around thinking? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I th- that's a great question. I think there there are some academics that are in those you know glossy ivory towers that are really 
looking out their windows, doing work rather than being in the midst of the work. And for me, I like to write and study and teach about the world that's right outside my door and really thinking about what's, you know, what's been important to me and, and how can I make that um, palpable and interesting to other people. And for me, gender, sexuality, and race have always been areas of a lot of interest, but also struggle in many ways too. So taking my interest and my struggles and trying to better understand them and make it accessible for other people as well that might not have the language or, or the information as to how to talk about it. But the more that we talk about it and we have dialogue, right? Like the more that we talk about gender and the more that we talk about sexuality and the more that we talk about race, um, the more comfortable we get with it. And that's where the change begins to come, giving people the, um, the information that they need and, and helping them feel empowered to explore and discover it for themselves. This is a good time for a short break. We'll be right back after a short message. <laughs> Did you know, women only have about 15% share of the voice distributed by main media. Last year, only 21% of top charting podcasts had a female host. This is because we need more ratings and reviews. We need you. This is the only time we'll ever ask you to stop listening. Hit the pause button. Take the time right now to rate and review us. Help us change the stats. That way, we can be here when you're ready to listen again. My guest today is the fabulous author, anti-racism advocate, and beloved teacher, Dr. Marnie Brown. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Marnie, you've taken on a variety of leadership roles within the academy and also within your professional society. Why do you volunteer for these positions? That's a great question. I get asked that at work quite a bit because <laughs> um, I, 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 I am engaged in quite a bit of service at my institution. Um, I have coordinated a few new programs, have been involved in um, what, something that's been very near and dear to my heart is getting a food pantry up and running at our school. We have a lot of students with housing and food insecurity that is finally going to get off the ground this year after several years of writing a proposal, figuring out a budget. How do you do this at a state school? So um, wait, it, hold on. I have to interrupt yeah, you because please. that's so impactful. Um, one of my big concerns about I say children not being in school, but also when I think of children, I also think of young adults and adults who have to make their way in the world without a very big safety net. And so I was always concerned that children wouldn't be eating as a result of being homeschooled or distance learning. Mm -hmm. And you're mm -hmm. telling me this this goes into the, the college area. Very too. much so. Uh, the food insecurity for college students is incredibly high. Um, and it was as before well as, COVID because you were it, already trying to get even that in. Worse now. That's right. And, and really basic needs. I mean, we've got a lot of young women that are making decisions between feminine hygiene products, gas in the car, and feeding their family. And I don't think anybody should have to decide which one of those they get. They should all be made accessible. 
So there are two things that have been really important to me at my institution. One was setting up um, period packs in all the women's bathrooms on campus. That took a few years, but we were able to get that off the ground. And now we'll have a food pantry in place this fall. And, um, you know, there's no judgment. There's no application. Student just has to come with their ID card and they'll get a bag of food based on their needs, their allergies, Um, even thinking about if they don't have a kitchen, right? I don't want to send them with a bag of dry noodles if they can't use it. So really being mindful of what their their needs are. Um, And that's been a, that's definitely been a big interest of mine. I found when I first started working, I would keep like a box of food in my office for students that were hungry. And I was amazed at how fast that went. So clearly there was a much bigger need than I realized. So I've definitely spent some time um, working on that and, and trying to embed it into the the school where students don't feel any shame around it. It's just about serving their their whole student being and feeling food secure matters to their success in the classroom. You know, when when I was a when I was a college student, one of my favorite professors, we began this conversation talking about warmth inside of student and professor relationships. My favorite professor owned an apple orchard and he would always have a huge bowl of apples that he had picked and he never failed to offer me something to eat and I always was eating in his office. Now I wasn't one of the students that you're describing but I just wonder how many of us just generally are hungry when we're trying to learn. (laughs) Very much so. I mean I think you and I both know it's like how do you take a calc test or an essay exam if you're hungry. Oh, you haven't eaten for or you haven't eaten, or you're thinking, hours or, yeah, yeah, like, am, am I able to buy running tampons today? Oh, Whatever gosh. it is, right? It's like, for me, student success is a student feeling like they are able to be them whole, their whole selves in the classroom. And the security needs they have are being met so they can focus on their learning. And if they're not being met, they're not going to do well, even if they're very bright. So we need to be able to provide these materials so that they f- they feel good when they're in the classroom right, and their so mind is in the right place. Best to learn. performance, and of course, exactly. I see that connection directly to what I do in clinic for very, very ambitious so. women of purpose like you. <laughs> so we, the food, food matters. Pantry. Yeah, food. Yeah. How we fuel our bodies is so important. Very much so. Very much so. So the food pantry has been really important to me. Um, Some of the other things that have really mattered is the professional organizations that I'm a part of. Um, Of course, COVID has changed how we meet and how we work. But generally, when we are meeting in different places of the country, really trying to think about the footprint we leave when we come there and getting involved. So, for example, if we're in New Orleans or Jacksonville or Birmingham, whatever it might be, what are some of the needs of that local community that we as an organization can help provide while we're there using their space for a conference? Um, and I'll never forget when I first got into the profession, um, Hurricane Katrina was something that obviously many folks in Louisiana were dealing with. And we were in New Orleans for a conference and being able to see the destruction and then volunteer for some of the cleanup really made me realize that being an academic is not just about writing or being in the classroom. It's about being out in the streets and, and actively engaging with the communities that you're studying. And that's been something very important to me, too. What I've heard so far is that you are really good at identifying invisible needs and unspoken needs of people and groups in whole communities. Um, Most of our clinic members, like you, are women of professional purpose. And I guess I just wonder what led you to decide to join my medical practice at the Hello Health Clinic. 
So if, if you'll give me a few minutes to describe what led me to you, um, when I was 30 and I was in graduate school, I had a minor stroke and that kind of led me down a path of lots of um, weather related or connected health issues, particularly things with my bones and my joints um, and fatigue. And it took me a really long time to find a physician that saw me for who I was and was willing to acknowledge that there were all these different things happening and maybe there's a connecting pattern. Um, I've shared with you before, sometimes I find as women in the kind of traditional practices of medicine, we're not always heard, we're misdiagnosed, um, we're told everything is hormonal. And you and, and I, I share so much frustration over that. <laughs> very much yeah. so. And I, I found myself going from doctor to doctor trying to get a diagnosis and nobody really answering my questions or listening and I was getting more sick. I finally was tested for ankylosing spondylitis, which is a, a bone joint uh, disease, and that's what was happening. It, I was having fusions in my jaw and started to get some in my in my low back and different parts of the spine, and it was really, it it like knocked knocked my world. I mean, I just I went from being very athletic and fit, and all of a sudden I just couldn't do simple things like grip well or hit a tennis ball or go for a long walk. So it took me a long time to get um, some help. And, and I did. I got some help. I got Wait, on some biologic. Hold on one second. Yeah. So for yeah. those who don't know, ankylosing yes. spondylitis, called AS for short, mm -hmm. It's a rare progressive mixed connective tissue disease. So what that means right. is it affects Marnie's joints and certain parts of her body, and it can destroy them if it's not carefully managed. That's right. That's right. And for me, it first started happening in my jaw, and that was super problematic because I talk all the time. Um, I fused in both sides of my jaw first, and that became the indicator to some doctors that it must be something rheumatological. So I was tested for AS and was positive on that test, and I started down the biologic path. But while on that path, I was still getting very sick. And I think part of it was the medications I was on and just nobody really connecting all these different pieces. So 10 years later, almost 40, and I am thin. I am having ongoing sinus infections and lung infections. And it wasn't long after that we had joined a school that you were also you know, a part of. And I met you there. We, we had some brief conversations, but I, I remember one day talking with you about my health issues and you invited me to come over to your house and talk more about it with you. And, and I think this is at the starting stages of your practice as well. And I will the never very, forget. Very, very beginning. Very, very beginning. beginning. <laughs> and I, I came over to your home and I think you maybe took 20 pages of handwritten notes of everything that I, I shared I know. I couldn't you. help it. I was like, wait a second. This is a story. I got to piece this together. <laughs> That's right. And, and I came to you first complaining about a really severe cough and lung infections. And lo and behold, with your intervention, we came to find that that was connected to some of the medications and the inflammation issues. You really helped me see that there could be more to living with AS than just being sick, but there's a way to manage AS. You know, and this is what really struck me about what you told me at that very first like meeting, like that very first time when I was actually learning what had been happening to you, because honestly, mm -hmm. I've seen you, you, you're walking around, you're constantly smiling. When, when we talk about batteries being included, Marnie, you have mm -hmm. them in, you know, in spades, right? Right. But I remember thinking this is affecting her jaw, which means mm -hmm. it's affecting this very important voice. And I'm nervous and worried about losing this precious voice that Marnie has. 
that you know mm-hmm. that's why I'm so excited about your books, and I'm so happy to he- um, hear from you today about all these other things that I had no idea you were doing. <laughs> but sure. I just I don't know the fact that it's the, the jaw, and you're able to talk with me right now. It's something we couldn't take for granted that right. day. It was. It's been interesting, huh? Yeah. I mean, so we've been together uh, three and a half years. I mean, once I brought you in and in some ways asked to be your patient, I remember bringing you all my records and I will never forget that you came to some appointments with me and really stepped in and asked questions in ways that I, I didn't know what to ask. And, and, and I've always said one of the there are many things that I adore about you and your practice. And I feel that I'm as healthy as I am today because of your guidance and intervention and pulling things together. But for me, I was having all these specialists that were saying, you need this, you need that, you need this procedure and that procedure. And I remember that first time we talked, they were saying they needed to go in and do something in my lungs. And I thought that that feels really risky. There's got to be something else. And you helped bring it all in. And in some ways you're like my quarterback, right? Like you steer so much of what happening. You help manage medications. You help manage when I have side effects, when I get sick, um, when I'm having a flare. So in some ways, I feel like you're helping me lead a path of wellness, even though I have a chronic disease. And um, I mean, it's not to say that disease doesn't slow me down because it does. I have days that are really hard. Um, sometimes by the end of the day, it's really difficult to get my jaw open or to bend or, to, you know, like I'll never forget. I'm, I'm really not able to give the kids a bath. I can't bend over in those ways. Um, there are lots of things I'm not able to do anymore, but there's so much I am still able to do or learning how to do because you've helped me see that. And we've done not only a combination of Western medicine and, and different medications, but we've also brought in neuromuscular massage, physical therapy, yoga. Um, I have this long self-care list that I feel like I've developed in hand with you. So I know how to take care of myself and help myself. Um, and that's what other doctors don't do, right? Like they're just, let me see you. Let me listen. Look at these labs. Okay, here's the medication and go. And our time together, it never feels like I'm in a rush we spend time going through A to Z, and then we come up with plans. And that feels so helpful. Like I don't feel lost to the disease. I feel like I'm in it with myself now. I'm not at war with my body. I'm working with my body. I'm just so thankful. I'm, I'm so thankful that that's how you feel. Um, and it, it's, you know, watching you just, you're a fighter. You know, and I just think that you're really unique in in this way, and so that's what makes our partnership work uh, well. Right. I think that's right because you have to fight. You have to fight for yourself. You have to advocate for yourself. But I think for a lot of people, and this is what you have helped me with, I'm not scared of the medical system anymore. I was for a while because I just I felt like I didn't know how to advocate for myself, and they kept saying you need so many things and. Now I feel like I have some idea of the questions to ask. I obviously come to you with questions all the time. And I find that if, like, if I am having a bad experience, whether it's an infection or getting hospitalized, we tackle that at the moment, but we never forget that like my well-being is really what matters. So even though we have to deal with this infection or this issue, it's just for right now. We are going to get through this. And then we'll come back to the other things that are really about your your well-being, um, being a warrior, fighting for yourself, not feeling like you're lost to the disease, but you're living with the disease. And I, I can't thank you enough for helping me see it that way. 
Um, I remember feeling like I was just, I was seriously was at war with my body and I don't feel that way anymore. And that's been a really big transition for me. That's, oh, that's such a, (laughs) such a gift that you just given me. It's what I, it's what all doctors I I think should want. It's what I want for women like you. (laughs) Well, because we both know, I mean, you're, you're trying, we're trying to do so many things, right? Like we believe in our profession. We believe in working with the population that we want to work with. For me, it's students. We believe in a better world, a more equitable world, an inclusive world. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, I I want, I want, everybody should feel like they have an important place, right? We all are playing a role in making things work, but not all of us get heard or get seen. So I think in our different professions, we're trying to do that for people. I remember feeling like you see me and you see me not just as the disease, but you see me as this very complicated human being that's also trying to be a good parent and a good colleague and a professor. Um, And the fact that all that matters to you helps with my overall health. Well, so many times I've heard the platitude, you've got to take care of yourself, right? But many of my patients say, you have no idea how busy I am. I'm looking at my schedule right now, and there's just no end in sight to what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. But over the three years we've been partnering on your health journey, I've always heard the opposite from you. You are intentional, you're proactive, and you are impeccable about self-care. How do you find the time? Like, how are you doing this? <laughs> right. Um, sometimes I don't know. I'll be perfectly honest. Sometimes um, I wake up and I'm like, how am I going to do these like, you know, 10 meetings today and teach yeah, two plus, classes? Plus the yoga Carmen prescribed and all the steps right, per day and right. like all the stuff I'm wanting you to do and you do it. That's right. You know, I think part of it is, and I've learned over the years, the importance of having boundaries, having boundaries at work, which is hard because sometimes if a student emails me late at night or calls me, I want to attend to them at that moment, but is that going to break my boundary? And if so, is that going to cause me some harm tomorrow? And I'm not always great at holding the boundaries, but I try really hard. For example, once I hit a certain time at night, I'm no more work. And once, you know, the weekend comes, work is, it's not going anywhere. It's going to be here on Monday. So give yeah, myself yeah. the time. With right, a long to... running task list. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But I think in some ways you've helped me give myself permission to stop working at night and to not work on the weekends and make time during the week to do the things that help with your well-being. And I'm not saying that that's easy because, you know, sitting in scheduling physical therapy takes time. Scheduling yoga takes time, but you have to make it a priority if your body and your wellness is a priority. I've learned how to block things off on my schedule. I still could get better at it, but I've learned to do that. Practicing time defense. I love it. That's right. Um, It's very important to me to get a good night's sleep. That's critical to to my health and my wellness. And I feel a real difference if I have not slept well, but I have a routine around sleep. Um, part of that comes with stretching throughout the day and doing what I feel like I can and following a stretching regimen. Um, to be perfectly honest, having a really good heating pad makes a world oh, of yeah. a difference. Oh, yeah. You've got the best advice right? on heating pads for sure. Yeah. I've been and passing I mean, that allow- one along, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and allowing myself to have the time to lay on that and decompress and stretch with it. Um, the other thing that you've also helped me with is I am someone who takes a variety of medications for different things, as you know, organizing the medications and keeping things on a really good schedule and trying to make sure you take the same medicine at the same time every day so you don't feel those drops or changes, but it's helping your overall wellness. 
and I can't say enough about, I have a lovely family. I have a very supportive wife and two lovely children. And um, I was nervous when we had kids because I was sick and yeah, I, I didn't yeah. know how well I was going to be able to provide and support and protect them. But I've realized that that there's more to being a parent than just those things. And even though maybe I can't give them a bath, I can sit and read with them and I can sit and color with them and listen and hold them. Um, and, and that's taken time to get comfortable with what I can't do and what I can do. Um, you know, for example, with COVID, they've been in virtual school. I've been home. So virtually. hard, so hard. It's so hard. And, and they're not seeing their friends. They're doing very little social activity. And a lot of it has to do with me because we recognize that if I was to get COVID, that would be really problematic. Um, but everybody in my nuclear family is really supportive of my health journey and recognizes how important it is. I can't say enough about my wife. I mean, we were dating when I had my stroke and she could have left when that happened, but she didn't. And she has stuck all of this out and takes me to every procedure and involved, but not too involved, but understands, you know, like she'll make me smoothies throughout the day because she is concerned that I'm getting, you know, enough fruits and vegetables. And um, she looks out for me too. And I try to do the same for her. I mean, that's a give and take. You know, and her wellness it's matters so too. interesting because um, you've heard me say this before. Gosh, Marnie, some you just take such great care of yourself okay so like folks we're taught did you hear all the things she's talking about how she does this and she <laughs> has to take medications down. throughout yeah. the day okay yeah. so there's like there's no give there's no That's wiggle right. room around it if if she misses then you know it, the as flares and sometimes That's the right. as well the as will punish you if you don't do your regimen That's correct. right That's correct. and then sometimes it'll flare despite you doing absolutely everything perfectly, right? That's right. And that's, that's right. got to be so frustrating, but you seem so accepting. I think, you know, part of making peace with myself and recognizing that my health is a lifelong journey is accepting the fact that some days are going to be better than others. And even if I'm following the sleep and the stretching and the heating pad and going to these therapies that I still might end up with a high fever or an infection or a flare and then coming to you and say, what do we, what do we do? And I think just accepting that that's, that's just part of this journey. You know, it's that, I think that's the hard thing about chronic illnesses is it doesn't go away. It's just finding strategies to cope with it. So you can still have your life and still have the things that matter to you. And something I've appreciated so much about you is my health and wellness is not just about the disease. It's much bigger than that. But if we're able to keep the disease somewhat managed, then we can work on some of the other things. And if something related to the disease, like I remember calling you yesterday and saying, my rhinoids are just, they're driving me crazy. And, and here we are, we've talked about it. We've come up with a plan and we'll go from there. And I think knowing that I have you and that there are options out there to help deal with you know, what's happening um, gives me some like mental relief uh, around it. Yeah, you. Uh, this is going to be this is such an unfair statement that I'm about to say, but it's the truth. Marnie, it's so hard to watch you suffer. Um, it's it, like I'm like sometimes all we can do is be present to it. Mm -hmm. And um, it takes a, a rare individual to, to partner like in, in your life, like your life partner, right? It takes a rare individual to be able to do that. But um, yeah, it's this has been really pushing my boundaries as a doctor. 
right? Right. Like, I know we've talked a lot about You are that. by far my most complicated patient, right? And I, I and if you have said to me and other doctors often say to me, you're that 1%. I, I don't know why or how, but you know, we'll do this drug and then you'll get this effect, but nobody else has had this effect or none it's of like my the, patients. You're have. always the case study. I, I'm going to write right. a report about you one day. <laughs> And I think there have been times where I feel like, well, gosh, I don't want to be that I know, patient. I'm sorry. But other times it's like, well, this is what it is, right? So how do we deal? How do we make sense of it? How do we do our best with what's been put in front of us? And, you know, like I said, I'm really fortunate to have a really wonderful support system. I mean, I, I've talked about my wife and kids, but my parents and my brother, they're also absolutely amazing. My parents put my health first before anything as you know, my brother will come and stay and cook and clean and take me to things. I mean, so to have that support hey, system. Three cheers for the active men in our lives, okay? That's right. But- <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. But what a difference it makes. I mean, if you are chronically sick, you oh, need a yeah. support system and you need a support system that you're able to say, I can't do this today. Can you help? And that took me a really long time to get comfortable with. But I I'm learning. I'm still learning how to deal with that. But that support system has been really critical. And then having, I can't say enough, having somebody like you where, you know, I might go to a neurologist and they say one thing and then I come and talk to you and we make we make sense of it. You make it, you know, something that I can get my hands around and better understand. And then we're able to make a decision together. I don't Should know. Should we do this or not do I this? I think you're giving me way too much credit. I think um, <laughs> that you are a phenomenal advocate for yourself and that you're always pushing the boundaries of what conventional medicine can do and you're always exploring what might work for you and um, and you don't give up. And I'm, I'm so glad because the work that you do is so important. It's what we need right now. And I think, you know, I think it's so interesting we're talking about this because, um, you know, mental health is something really important. And if you don't have your health, whether it's mental or physical, it's hard to move forward. And, um, I, I, you know, recognizing and thinking through for me that I, I guess I don't feel like it's a choice. Like, this is what I have to do. I want to have a productive life. I want to be involved with my kids. I want to have a good relationship with my partner. And I'm not going to let the disease take that away from me. I just have to figure out, and some days I do it better than others, how do I make the disease work for me? And, and how do I kind of, you know, get through it every day, especially because it's, it's relatively invisible to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not mm-hmm. something that you can see per se, but it really has taken a tremendous, I mean, it's changed my life drastically. Um, oh, yeah. How you sit, whether or not you can sit, whether or not you can stand, right. all these things that that's right. everybody else can take for granted. Um, sitting here talking to you today, I'm sitting on blankets. I've got heating pads. I've got, you know, muscle creams on my back, all the things so I can be here with you. But I have to recognize I have to give myself time to get to that place so that I can sit here and be as, as comfortable as I can doing what I want to do. I've actually been promoting the idea that self-care is a professional responsibility, do you mm. share that view? I do. I do. I, I share it for myself and I share it for the people I work with. It's really important that we take care of ourselves. In fact, I keep this posted up by my desk that says I care for myself so that I can care for others. So if I don't, if I'm not taking care of myself, I'm not going to be good for my kids. I'm not going to be good for my students. I'm not going to be able to, to write in the ways that I want or need to. So, I, I mean, I have, to, I have to be in the best place I can be at this moment to do what it is I want to do. I'm hoping that what everyone hears is if Dr. Marnie Brown can do all the things that she does and she can do all the things she does for her self-care as well, then I can too, 
right? Because I don't have to do all this other stuff, right? But one thing I want to just really zero in on in terms of making sure we share your particular um, experience with exercise, right? Because every Mm. member of our clinic gets an exercise prescription, and you take my steps per day prescription quite seriously. I do. So what would you say to someone like you who may have been newly diagnosed as having arthritis or another Mm -hmm. joint problem where it Mm -hmm. makes exercise not just difficult but painful sometimes? That's right. And I think for me, what was so hard and I've shared with you is before this happened, I was, I I was a runner. I played lots of tennis. I was very physical. And, and, and even now I think of my teaching is physical. I use my body in expressing and, you know, talking to people. So what I've come to understand is my, I guess we can call it exercise. Sometimes it doesn't feel like exercise, but I'm very conscious of my steps. I really try to get out, even if it's just a walk down the street Um, to do that. And then on the days where there's more time to go for longer walks and just take my time with the walk, it's not, I'm not trying to, to, you know, run a marathon or, or walk a certain distance. It's just getting out there and doing it. I'm putting some dedicated time into stretching. And, you know, I've shared with you, I found a yoga instructor who also has RA. So the way that she's rheumatoid arthritis, which is another joint problem, usually of the knees and hands. (laughs) Yeah. So she's really been able to develop a yoga program for me that fits my needs, which is great. Um, And then just doing, you know, I love gardening. I love planting and being outside and allowing myself to do that, but protecting myself too. Right. So it's really important that I wear very good gloves, long clothes, um, all those things that protect my skin, which is also an area that tends to be problematic because of the disease. But I'm and not going to let it sometimes because me. of the meds. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But I'm not going to let it stop me. Yeah. I'm just going to do what I need to do so I can enjoy that. I don't think anything can stop you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad for it. But, you know, really, it's so wonderful to have uh, have you in my life. It's so funny to hear you say that because I will never forget. And last year, as you know, you know, I had some infections and I was home with a pick line for a few weeks. So a pick line is a it's kind of like a special IV that goes in um, in one of the veins near your elbow. Yeah. Right. And it has to right. stay in so, for weeks. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And and I'm, I'm, for patients that have not had that, it's not painful. It's just, you know, that it's there and it hooks up to whatever the medication is that you're getting. And, and you and I both know I was on like three rounds of medication every day with lots of meds for it. But I would still try to like empty the dishwasher or go sit out front while, you know, having the medication on the pole. Because even though I was going through that, I didn't want to miss out on life. And I didn't want to miss out on my responsibilities in the house. And, and even though it wasn't easy, I knew that there was going to be an end. And, you know, this was just for this time. And what do I need to do to get through this, and also still feel like I'm contributing? I think for me, at the end of the day, I I always say to myself, did I do the best I could today? Yeah. Right. And some days that's very little and other days it's it's really long. But if I if I did the best I could that day, then I'm I'm OK. These are and minor miracles that you tell me about. Sometimes I'm just <laughs> like, look, it's good enough just to be upright and breathing. Keep that's breathing. Right. Right. <laughs> right? So if you're lying on the floor, but you're breathing, it's going to be OK eventually. That's eventually right. that's we're right. going to find a way. It's, it's going to be OK. It's going to be OK. The sun's going to come up the next day huh. and those reminders of things like for me, sunshine makes such a difference, right? Hearing birds makes me happy. Having animals in my life, all those sorts of things, they give you good energy and you need that. We all need that. Um, I think folks in a position like mine maybe need it a little bit more, 
but you have to make sure that it's there and that you allow yourself to use those wonderful things that keep you going. Dr. Marnie Brown, thank you for sharing so much of yourself with us today. It's time for action steps. So what would you say are the top takeaways? So if we're talking about health, my top three things, one is sleep. And you've helped me realize that how important sleep is and letting your body rest and have that and sleep in a way that you're comfortable, you know, have what makes you feel like you can rest and sleep and let your body heal at night. I can't say enough about a heating pad. I can't get over the difference that is made and and making sure you have one that fits you and you can use and you can use when you're sitting or when you're lying down or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, And also just listening to your body. And that that sometimes is, is harder than we think it is, but really paying attention to what can I and what can't I do today? And with the cans, how do I make the best of that? It's amazing. Um, I just have to say, I'm excited to read your next book, whichever one comes out first. Where (laughs) can folks come to find your books? So most of what I write is somewhat for college students or the college classroom, but by no means does it mean other folks can't access it. Um, The two anthologies I have out now, one are called The Frameworks of Inequality, and the other one is called um, Gendered Lives and Sexual Beings. Those can both be purchased on Amazon. And then the next two books coming out, one with Rutledge Publishers and Oxford Publishers. As soon as they're out, I will let your folks know um, where to get them. And um, I'm just, you know, just going to keep doing what I do. You do it so well. Thank you all for listening. As always, action steps and contact information for show guests like Dr. Brown are in the show notes, so please check them out. If you like what you hear on Hello Health today, please support the show. Just take some time right now to rate and review us. It helps other people find us. Until next time, remember, today is good. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Because I am a medical doctor, it's important for me to tell you that nothing I say here in this podcast can substitute for your doctor's advice. My lawyers make me say the same thing this way. The contents of this podcast are neither intended nor implied to be relied on for medical diagnosis, care, or treatment concerning any individual. Under no circumstances does this podcast create a physician-patient relationship, nor does it constitute engagement in the practice of medicine or the provision of any healthcare service to an individual patient. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for professional diagnosis and treatment. Consult a healthcare provider before making any healthcare decisions or to obtain guidance about any medical conditions. The producers of this podcast expressly disclaimed responsibility and shall have no liability for any damages, loss, injury, or liability whatsoever suffered as a result of reliance on the information contained in this podcast.